We all get distracted with lesser things, every one of us. Things that we believe have great value, but in the grand scope of looking at eternity, they really don't matter quite as much as we think that they do. And we've taken this same idea into the church, and we have made much of lesser things. In other words, we're saying yes to someone or something, but are we saying yes to the right things? Are we settling for the lesser things when in all actuality there is a greater yes that God is calling us all to? And that once we discover it, it is going to change us. It's going to change the church as we learn what this greater yes is. So today, I want us to evaluate. We're going to evaluate our lives, we're going to evaluate our families, and we're going to evaluate our church in light of Scripture to help us discover what this greater yes that we're called to do is. And my hope is that we will not settle for lesser things and stay complacent. So I want to kick this off with this question that we should use as an evaluation tool to help us to discover what our greater yes is. Do our outcomes align with the intentions of our efforts? Do our outcomes, in other words, the result, the thing that we're getting for the, the investment that we're making, the intended uh, outcome of our efforts, are we seeing that with that? Because I think a lot of times we put effort and energy into things that make us feel good. Things that we go, oh man, I really enjoyed doing that. I really felt good about that. But is that thing that we're investing in, is that thing that we're putting our energy and are pouring our life into, pouring our time, pouring all of our effort into, is it really something that is making an impact on eternity? Is it aligning with the intention of our efforts, or is it just something that's making us feel good? Let's look over in the book of Acts chapter 4. We looked at this in our last message, but I think that this is worth going back to because it's just so powerful. In Acts chapter 4, remember, I'll give you just a quick uh, reminder of what the setting is here. In Acts 4, you have Peter and John. They were on their way to go pray, and they walked past the gate called Beautiful. There was a lame man who was sitting at the gate. He was begging and he was asking for money, and he looked up at Peter and John and did the same thing he'd done to everyone else who had passed by. Can I have some money? And they say, we don't have any money, silver and gold we don't have, but what we do have we'll give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this guy gets up, and he begins to walk. Scripture says he began to leap, he began to praise God, and he followed Peter and John around because he is excited about what God has done in his life, and everyone else is seeing this miracle, this man that they were familiar with in their community that they knew was lame, and now he's walking, and Peter and John are, are going around preaching the gospel, and this is them uh, teaching and preaching in Acts chapter 4 after this man had been healed. So let's pick this up in Acts 4. Let's look at verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 4. Acts 4 and verse 1 says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. 
And they arrested them, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Hang on just a second. Did, did we read that correctly? So apparently, this miracle God has used in a powerful way to attract a lot of people to hear the message of the gospel. And Peter and John are being confronted and eventually get arrested for teaching and proclaiming something. Think about this for a second. I mean, let's just let's look at the opportunity that is in front of Peter and John. Peter and John have obviously amassed some sort of crowd because everyone's heard that this man has been healed, and they heard that something happened with Peter and John there present, and they want to hear what these guys have to say. And so 5,000 at least men, this is not counting and numbering the women and children, so I think it would be safe to say we're looking at somewhere between eight, maybe 10,000 people who have gathered around and who are watching this scene unfold. This isn't like there's just 20 of their buddies watching this. This has created a stir in this area. It has created a huge scene. And that's why all of the religious leaders are nervous, because it's created this big scene. It's gathered all of this attention. And they're wanting to go, what, what's happening here? What's the deal with all the attention that's been garnered by this situation? And then they find out these guys are preaching and teaching about Jesus, and so it says they were greatly annoyed at them doing this, but it said they were preaching a certain kind of message. Because if all of a sudden Christ had done this incredible miracle, this incredible group of people had been gathered, and there's this amazing opportunity, what would you say in that moment? What would be the thing that you would want to make sure that you said that was most important? I was uh, reading a book um, by... Francis Chan, and he said that when he gets invited to speak at churches, he said most churches, like ours as well, has a clock in the back that you may or may not be aware of. And this clock actually counts down. And as this clock is counting down, it's letting you know how much time that you have left to share whatever it is you have to share. And if you go over that time, it begins to count up, and it's in red. It's like, you know, this is... <clears throat> this is, you're, you're in trouble now. You've gone over the time that has been allotted for you to share. He said, when I see that clock, he said, I imagine as I'm speaking to people that that is the amount of time that I have left to live. And he said, and I think if this were the amount of time that I had yet to live, what would I be using that opportunity to say to the people who were listening to what I was sharing? As I began to think about that, I began to think about Peter and John who have had this great crowd listen to what they are saying because they're curious about this man who's been healed. They're wanting more information. They're wanting to know by what power, by what name, by what authority has this miracle happened because it's such a huge thing in their community. And in verse 2, we see the annoyance of the religious leaders by the message that they were preaching. The message they were preaching was they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That was the message. That was what they chose was most important for people to hear at that moment because they didn't know, is this going to be the last time we ever get to speak? Is this going to be the thing that gets us put to death? Is this going to be the last time that we have an opportunity 
to be able to share something. So what is the most important? What is the most significant thing? What is the greater thing? Because what they weren't saying is they didn't say, well, let's, let's teach them a good financial management class right now. Let's teach them 10 steps to a happier, healthier, better, whatever. That, that wasn't what was on their mind at that moment. They weren't thinking, oh, let, let, let's just give them some, some, some life tips. Let's give them some, some practical how-tos. No, they were thinking, this is the opportunity that we have to tell them about eternity. This is the opportunity that we have to tell them about the greater thing that matters, the thing that matters more than any other thing. And they capitalized on that because they had a greater yes that was fueling them and driving them, and they knew in that moment what the most important thing that those people should hear would be. And as they began to make that thing the most important thing that was on their hearts and on their minds, we see that there was fruit, there was a result that happened that was also impacting eternity as 5,000 people began to hear and believe in Jesus Christ. You see, Peter and John were telling people that eternity mattered more than life here on this earth. They were preaching that the resurrection of the dead was only found in Christ alone. They were preaching that Jesus was the gateway to eternity with God because there's this sin barrier, but Jesus has come and set the captives free and faith in him alone would save us from eternal separation in God, from God. Nothing else would save us from eternal separation from God. This message created a lifestyle. It created a value system that produced outcomes. Man, like somewhere in the neighborhood of probably 10,000 people receiving Christ. And remember, it was just a, a couple chapters earlier that 3,000 people had received the message of the gospel and become Christ followers, becoming born-again, passionate followers of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, who were pushing Christ's likeness and teaching and living Christ's likeness and sharing the gospel in the face of persecution, who were gathering together in one another's homes and doing life together, not because it was the new, fun, cool, hip thing to do, but because it was necessary, because we were saying yes to the greater things. Because the church understood and was driven by a passion to say yes to what mattered most because it was very clear what mattered most. It was very apparent what mattered most. They weren't concerned about buildings. They weren't concerned about budgets. They weren't concerned about different programs. They were concerned about eternity, first and foremost. They were concerned about who wore what, who said what, who did what. They were concerned about eternity because they had found something that mattered more and everything else was lesser. Everything else took a back seat and eternity became the forefront and they began to be concerned about their fellow citizens, their fellow uh, co-workers, their fellow neighbors. There was a burning in their heart and a passion to preach the message that eternity mattered more. There was a burning passion in their heart to let others know that Jesus was the only way, that he was the truth, that he was the life. There was no other path. There was a passion burning in them that caused them to alter and change their lifestyle. So my question is, as we evaluate, are we putting effort into the right things? Are we directing our true passion to greater things? Could we be busy? Could it be possible that we have been busy 
putting energy and resources and focus into things that aren't creating outcomes that please God? Are we saying yes to lesser things? Because often it's easy for us to say yes to things that make us feel good. Things that we enjoy, that we go, oh, I feel like I'm making a difference. I feel like I'm doing something. But is it the right thing to be saying yes to? Because for us to find the greater yes, we have to start at the same place no matter who you are. All of us have to start at the same place if we're going to find and discover the greater yes. And the greater yes starts with us seeking first to please God. That's where we start. We have to start there because pleasing God should be the number one priority of a child of God. It should be the number one priority of the child of God because we want our Heavenly Father to be, to be pleased with us. For at the end of our life, for us to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, to seek His kingdom, to live by faith. Hebrews 11 and 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Think about that. Are we seeking the rewards of God? How important are the rewards of God to us? What is the reward of God? It's saying, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the rewards of God. It, it, it's not just stuff. We often think about rewards being stuff. No, at the end of the day, the reward of serving God is that we get God. We get to be with Him because by our own admission and our own value system that has driven selfish humanity, we should not have that privilege or opportunity. But because of Jesus and Jesus alone, we now can enter in with boldness into the presence of God. That's the reward of being a child of God. It's Jesus plus nothing else, and that's it. It's not Jesus is the gateway to get me all of the goodies that I want. It's Jesus. I get Jesus. Am I content with Christ alone? Am I content with God being my reward? Have I found value in Him that is driving my internal value system because I recognize my need for Him? And I recognize He is the answer to my need, that I want to hear, good and faithful servant, you've done well, that I want to seek His kingdom first. I heard someone say this past week as I was listening to one of my, one of my favorite preachers. He said, uh, Jesus should not be first in your life because He's in a completely different category. Because when we say put Jesus first, then what we're saying is, I'm going to put Jesus first and then other things second and third and fourth and fifth and so on. He said, no, Jesus is first, second, third, fourth, fifth, because he's in a completely different category all to himself because he's holy and there's nothing else that compares to him. And if I think about the bigness of God, if I think about the majesty and the greatness of God and how he would, would even care about me, why should it not drive out of me this, this desire to serve Him and want to please Him? And the Bible says that it is impossible to please God without faith. So it is possible to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It is possible to, to be rewarded by God, by having that relationship with God. How do we do this? 
not by our own efforts, but yet it is through faith and faith alone. This active trust, this active belief that changes us from the inside out, that helps us to discover and chisel out and define what really matters, what the greater yes is, what the greater thing is. And it helps me see clearly what is the lesser thing, the distraction. You know, I think often the enemy would love to distract us with a bunch of good things. We think that the enemy only is going to give us and lay these big, huge, obvious traps. And we have those traps listed out, and we say, well, as long as I don't fall for these traps and I don't do these things, and everyone's kind of has their own relative list, but it's pretty much a shared list, you know. As long as I stay out of trouble, I don't do this, I don't say this, I don't live this way and don't do that, then I feel like I'm a pretty good person, and so I'm avoiding the trap of the enemy. Well, yeah, that's true in one sense because you're staying away from some of these things that are the bigger, obvious snares, but what about being distracted with good things, but yet you're saying no to the greater thing? That's also a trap of the enemy, where he would want to keep you busy, doing things that make you feel good, but do the outcomes of those things align with the effort that you're putting in them? Because if you were putting that same effort into the greater thing, into the greater yes, what would the outcome be then? What would the outcome be then? Are we seeking the rewards of God? Are we drawing near? Because if I hope to discover a greater yes, it's going to start with me seeking, with me drawing near, with me coming close to God. And he promises that if I draw near to him, that he's going to draw near to me. And as I fellowship with God, as I spend time with God, as I spend time in His Word, as I fellowship with others who are also loving God and loving others, it helps to keep me sharper and more refined in the things that should matter to those who trust and follow the Lord. Because think about Peter and John. Let's go back to that story. After Peter and John were preaching this message and these thousands of people heard this gospel presentation they were convicted to the core, and they responded, what do you think they thought that a Christian should be doing? What do you think they thought was the priority for a follower of Jesus? What would, in that moment, because they're brand new to this thing, you got a bunch of folks that are, you got thousands of baby Christians, right? Thousands of them. But yet, even though they're in their infancy, in their newfound faith in Christ, what would they think would be the priority at that moment? I can tell you this, it would be the right priority. The priority would be eternity. I need to tell other people. I need to live like eternity is actually real because this matters. There would be a sense of burning urgency in their hearts to share the truth about Jesus. There would be a burning urgency in their heart to evaluate their lives and their relationships in light of holiness, in light of pleasing God. There would be a burning desire in them and an urgency to want to care for other people around them without ever having to have been taught how to do any of that stuff. Because I think oftentimes in church, what we, what we fall into are these traps of finger-wagging. You know you need to be doing this. You know you need to be doing that. 
You know, you, you really, and you go, man, I feel bad about that. Oh, I really need to do something about that. Oh, yeah, I feel bad about that. Honey, you feel bad about that too? Yeah, I feel bad about that. We should do that. You should do that. No, you should do that too. Yeah, we should do that. And then we never do anything. After all the finger wagging, after all of the, after all of the feelings of guilt and kind of like, yeah, we really need to take a step in this direction and do this thing better. And yeah, and we get right back into works. And then we make a small adjustment or we'll make a small tweak here and there. Yeah, I'm going to give a little bit more of my time. Yeah, I'm going to invest a little bit more over here and over there. But then are we just saying yes to something to make ourselves feel better and to alleviate the guilt? Or are we being fueled and driven by passion? Because it's not just us responding to what we should do. It's knowing what to do because we have found a greater yes that's driving our actions, that's driving our behavior, that's calling us to make the sacrifices, not because we're told you should sacrifice, but because I want to, because I know what matters most. If your home were on fire and you only had just a few moments to rush in and save those that were most precious to you, all of the sudden you would find out what really matters. You would find out what really matters because there's a sense of urgency. If you knew there were only moments to spare, if you knew that, 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 that this, is, this is the moment here that you have to do the most amount of good in the shortest amount of time because you know the end is drawing near, all of a the sudden there would be an urgency in your heart to prioritize the greater things. And you would chase after those things and want to save those things because you felt that this is what truly matters. You see, what does drawing near to God look like? Well, it's, it's, not a, it's not a quantity thing, for starters. That's what a lot of us get caught up in. We think it's a quantity thing. Like, we have these different benchmarks in our mind where we think, oh, if I spend X amount of time with God, then that's good. That's like me passionately pursuing God. I, you know, I, I started off with the 15 minutes, but man, I'm getting passionate. I'm down to 30 minutes. Uh, you know what? I'm really going passionate. You ready? You ready for this? An hour. An hour. And we say, God, I'm giving you this little piece of my life where I'm going to think about you, where I'm going to spend time with you, and that's putting you first. So now I'm going to get on to second, third, fourth, and fifth, and sixth, and seventh. You, you hear what I'm saying this morning? You see, we say, God, I, I, I did the things I was supposed to do for you. Now I'm going to go do all the other things for me because I did the thing for you first. And, and that's not how this thing works. It's he's first, he's second, he's third, he's fourth. He's, he integrates and wants to, to, to be priority in all of those different roles that you have. So he begins to influence and lead and guide and direct, not be separate, not be put on a shelf for later use or convenience, but know where he actually is infused and integrated into every part of your life. And he takes priority in every relationship, in every decision. Not just about quantity. I did my God time today. <laughs> no, it's about the heart. Because living by faith, church, is more than a declaration. I'm going to say that again because somebody was sleeping on me. Living by faith is more than a declaration. Hebrews chapter 11, where we read that it's impossible to please God without faith. Let's read about some people who died in faith 
pleasing God and what their lives looked like and what some of those attributes were. Hebrews 11, let's look at verse 17 as some of these who lived by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, though Isaac shall be your offspring, shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did, receiving him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each one of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, of Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by the resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, and apart from us they should not be made perfect. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Living by faith is more than just a declaration. It's more than just saying, I'm a person of faith. I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian. It's more than that. It is a lifestyle. It's more than a moral code. It's more than a commitment to attend gatherings of people who believe and worship the same way you do. Living by faith means daily being the church and putting into practice a lifestyle that values what God values every single day. It means putting into practice a lifestyle that sets us apart from what society deems normal. Christ followers should be different. Amen? Over in 1 Peter 2 and 9, in the King James, 
We're called a peculiar people. Peter and John had a high priority on the things of God. They were able to stand by, faith-filled with the Holy Spirit of God, with supernatural boldness in a moment of pressure. They had found their greater yes. They had found their reason for living and a cause worth dying for. They had found something more valuable than their life, something worth giving their entire lives to, and they were sold out to it. They were radical. They were committed. They lived by faith. And this is where we as the church, understanding that it's not somewhere we go, but rather it's who we are, this is where our greater yes comes from. This is what drives the greater yes. A greater yes comes from awe of Jesus Christ. It comes from being in awe. That's where the greater yes comes from. Because in, that's a challenge for us, though, oftentimes in America, because, quite frankly, Americans just aren't that easily impressed, are we? We're great at folding our arms and going, what you got? We'll see if that impresses me. Because we, when we find something that impresses us, what do we do? We want to share it with other people. Like if you found that video that you think no one else has seen yet on social media, and you found it and you think I'm the first person to have seen this, this is the greatest thing ever, and you send it to your friends and they're like, yeah, that's two months old, we've already seen that. And you're like, oh. And you try to make up for it, but they've already seen it. They're not impressed. They had already seen it. They'd already laughed at it. Oh, you're just now seeing that? How many of you ever had somebody tell you that before? And you're like, oh, you got the meme shame. <laughs> or you're excited about something because you had this great experience and you tell other people about it and they go, nah, wasn't that great? And you're kind of disappointed by it because we're always looking to be impressed by something. And what impresses one may not impress another. And so we're all the time wanting to either be impressed and we're asking others to impress us. Impress me with your customer service. Impress me, church, with the quality of your music. Impress me with the quality of your teaching. Impress me with the depth of your teaching. Impress me with the, the success of your outreach program. Impress me with this. Impress me with that. And we've got our arms folded, waiting to get connected, waiting to get involved, waiting to be a part of this faith community because we've got our arms folded, waiting for someone to impress us. When it's not us who should be impressing one another, it's us who should be in awe of Jesus Christ and what He alone has done for us that should drive our commitment, that should drive and fuel our passion, that should drive this burning in our hearts to want to be connected in Christ-centered community. Not what someone else has done that made me go, oh, well, that's pretty neat. Because that's going to wear off. The new car smell will go away. The new pastor smell will go away. <laughs> Ask my wife, it has left. 
the, the, the new building smell will go away. The, the, the new exciting ministry smell will go away. So there has to be something driving and fueling me beyond new and shiny. There has to be something else impressing me more than people and things. And if I stay in awe of Jesus Christ, that is what fuels and drives my passion to serve Him and connect in Christ-centered community and be the church. That's what fuels the greater yes, is my awe for Jesus. So, so let me ask you this question, and, and this is something I don't want you to dismiss because at the surface level, I know you're going to want to say yes. I'm asking myself this question, and, and I want us to ask ourselves this question to actually think on it and, and meditate on this question. Allow it to go deeper than your head and allow this question to seep into your heart, to cause you to reflect, and maybe if need be, to repent. Has the message of the gospel so captivated our hearts that when we are reminded of it, that we are stirred to action, or are we just not impressed anymore? I've heard that message. Move on to something else. Tell me some great mystery I didn't know, some obscure story buried in chronicles or kings or some new perspective on some new theory found in the book of Genesis. Or tell me of some great one or two scriptures that have never been highlighted, but yet you've explored some great depth and gleaned some great principle out of. Let's talk about those things. We know the gospel. We know the gospel. We, we, we've heard about Jesus. We, we want to hear deeper things, if, as if there were anything deeper. Paul said that the mystery has been revealed. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is the depth. That is the mystery. That is the thing that should make us go, wow. That is the thing that should move us to be in awe, not just intellectual engagement of some historical piece that we had not yet heard. If we are more in awe of some historical piece than we are of Christ, friends, can I tell you something is wrong with our priorities? Because we should be in awe of Christ more than any other thing, more than any other highlighted passage of Scripture. It should be Christ alone. Because when all of the people were gathered, and Peter and John are surrounded by their accusers, and there's thousands of people seeing this man who had been lame from birth, and now he's walking around following Peter and John. What did they say? What great truth did they want to highlight? What was the greater yes in that moment? It was Christ and Christ alone. One of the scariest verses in Scripture to me is 2 Timothy 3 and 5, where Paul writes to Timothy and says, there's going to be people who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and they're going to have a form of godliness, but there's not going to be any power to back it up. They're just going to look the part but they're not going to have any, any substance. I always think it's funny when we see these superhero movies coming out, you know, these suits make them look really tough. 
and I heard someone being interviewed about, how's that suit fit? I can barely move in this suit. <laughs> it makes you look tough, but you, you can't do tough guy or girl stuff in it because you can barely move. But you look the part. And to us, that impresses us that someone looks the part. Folks, God is not impressed when we look the part, but we have no substance. He's not impressed when we're saying yes to lesser things, but we sure do look the part at the right time when called upon. We've got everything in a row, everything organized, everything put on so God would be pleased. And God says, that's not what pleases me. You don't want to know what pleases me? Faith. Because without that, it's impossible. You can try everything else and nothing else matters. It's faith in Christ alone. That pleases God. That's what causes us to persevere. That's what causes us, like Moses, to, to say no to the pleasures of this world because we would rather be considered someone who, 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 is, who is following Christ and saying no to those lesser things because we found greater value in Jesus because no one else has died for me. No one else has given their life in my place. No one else has forgiven my sin. No one else has made me new. No one else has opened up a pathway to where I can actually be called a son of God. No one else has done that, nor could they, if they tried on their best day. It's Jesus Christ alone. Am I in awe of that? Am I just not impressed anymore? We, we all want to find purpose. We all want to find meaning. We all want to find this greater purpose in life. Illuminate, what's my purpose? But if we're not in awe of Jesus, can I tell you, we're going to keep seeking lesser things. We're going to keep seeking after things that are going to lead us to ruin and keep us distracted just enough to feel good about ourselves. But are we doing something that really matters? Do our outcomes match and align with the intention of our efforts? The greater yes that God is calling us to comes from a lifestyle that has a deep, heartfelt love for Jesus that has stirred you. So my hope today, and I feel like my job today as your pastor is to stir you, to remind you of the gospel, to remind you of your need for Jesus so that you can live by faith and put into action the things that God is leading and guiding you to do the things that you were instructed in Scripture to do, the difficult things, the things that cost you, the things that have a great personal cost. Those are the things I'm doing, not, not, not because I'm supposed to, but because how could I not in response to what he's done? I, I believe that God would have the church be a powerful force in the world. Do you, do you believe that? Do you believe God wants the church to have power in the world? I believe he does because otherwise we just have a form of godliness with no power. I believe that we as the church are supposed to be that light, that city set on a hill, that peculiar people who are living with purpose, who are saying yes to the greater things, who are living on purpose, who are living sacrificially because they have found someone worth giving everything to. So do the outcomes in your life align with the efforts that you're putting forth? Could you possibly be putting forth efforts into the wrong things or maybe the lesser things? God, help us 
Help us to see great value in you like never before. Lord, enlighten the eyes of our understanding to see the greatness and richness of the depths of your love expressed through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Help us to say yes to the greater things, to live with greater purpose, with greater intentionality as we live by faith every day, every single day, being the church, being the body of Christ, every day, everywhere. We can't do this without you. We ask your Holy Spirit, give us the supernatural gifts, the boldness, whatever is required to accomplish what will bring you glory and do the most good and bring the most people to the cross. We don't trust in ourselves, Lord, but we are trusting in you and your spirit, leading and guiding us into all truth. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.